You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and we're coming to you from the Clubhouse Studios in Rhinebeck. And our guest today is a wonderful musician, a jazz musician, jazz bass player. In fact, I think this is our very first jazz musician. I'm not too sure. I'm going to have to check with Rusty on that one. But I'm talking about Ira Coleman. Ira, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I've wanted to get you on the show for some time now. I'm a big fan of yours. You're a great player. We've got a lot to talk about. Let's just jump into it. You're a Rhinebeck musician. You're a Hudson Valley musician. You live right here in town, as I do. You've come a long way. You, you're a long way from home. You weren't born here. Where were you born? I was born in Stockholm, in Sweden. And where did you grow up? In, in Paris, right? Uh, in France, in any well, case? Well, in France and Germany. I spent a couple of years in Paris when I was until the age of two, and then my parents and I and my sister moved down to uh, southern France, to the French Riviera. I mm. stayed there for 10 years, and then I uh, moved with my mom to uh, to Germany and, and stayed there for another 14 years, and then I came to the States. I'm very interested in, the, in your childhood home because, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong because this, this is a, quite a statement, but you've had a lot of, as a young child, you had a lot of uh, jazz giants come to visit the house. Isn't that right? My parents were both jazz fans. My father was originally from Baltimore. And he was an artist, right? He was a painter, yeah. My mother Mm -hmm. was a silversmith and designer. We lived in southern France. You know, there weren't too many African-American expatriates in France. So um, when musicians came through France or through southern France, they usually stopped by our house. A lot of uh, those musicians my father had known previously from living in... um, in New York and and in Baltimore. And these aren't just any jazz musicians. We're talking about some of the biggest names in jazz, some of the game changers, guys like, well, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, and and Charlie Mingus, guys like that, right? Yeah. Uh, Louis Armstrong just came by the house, you know, because he was giving a concert there, but Billie Holiday, my parents knew her personally, and Charlie Mingus spent some time at our house, uh, Max Roach, uh, John Hendricks, um, you know, quite a long list of, of musicians who would... Of luminaries. Yes, yes. And how did that inform your music? I mean, was that your first taste of jazz? I mean, how yes, old were you, I mean, first of all, at that time? Well, this, ever since I can remember being a kid, you know, there was always a jazz record running on at home. That was the way we listened to music, was through records recordings since mm-hmm. there wasn't really too much jazz on the radio and TV was still in its infancy in the in Europe I think we we got our first TV in 1967 you know so by that time I was already 11 so all my childhood um, I've been listening to you know Ray Charles and Billy Holiday and great stuff you know Charlie Parker Thelonious Monk Max Roach all the all the um, records that my parents were playing religiously at home. Why the bass? I mean, a lot of musicians will start with an instrument and they'll graduate to the one that they stay with. Were you always a bass player or did you kind of slowly gravitate toward it? Well, I think I've always had a fascination with the bass. Um, Actually, after I had started playing the bass, my mom came and gave me one time a a drawing, you know, uh, my father at that time was um, doing record covers for um, European issues of jazz records. You know, he was working for uh, 
for Barclay. Uh, Eddie Barclay was uh, an American who had um, basically who was uh, had the catalog uh, from Atlantic Records, uh, all, all French reissues of of, of uh, American records, jazz records, and he was doing. My father was, uh, you know, doing the artwork for these re- records, so we would get a lot of new records at home. And one time he brought brought a, a record by uh, John Coltrane called Ole, and I was drawing, you know, making a drawing, and and um, I have I still have this drawing. Uh, uh, I I drew two bases, you know, and my father said, uh, "Why are you drawing two bases?" And I said, "Dad." Don't you hear there are two basses there on that record? You know, and then he listened in it and said, that's true. It was, uh, I think it was uh, Jimmy Garrison and um, Reggie Workman. You know, so you always had an ear for music. Yeah. Yes, and my mom said, you know, she loved the bass. She loved uh, Paul Chambers and Oscar Pettiford. And, and, and she loved the bass as an instrument, you know. And, and um, so, um, I don't know, I gravitated to the... I started with campfire guitar, you know, and self-taught. And at one point, I think my mom had a cello at home, and I sold it and swapped it for for a double bass. And I must have been, I think, 18 when I started, you know. Your dad's uh, job making these covers, I mean, was that his end to the business? Is that kind of where, where things started? And then he got to know people, they would come over to the house, things like that? Is, no, is, he knew that... People before he knew I think it before. He, uh, I think he met Eddie Barclay uh, just through the fact that um, you know um, he was uh, his, musicians were his friends, and I don't know exactly how it happened, but um, somehow um, you know my father had studied at Parsons School of Design through the GI Bill, you know, when he came back from World War Two. So he was in New York up until like 52 or 53, I think. And uh, I don't know exactly how he met Eddie Barkley and how he started doing record covers, but, uh, you know, remember seeing the Barclays coming to the house and him doing artwork for them, I guess. It was, you know, when you're a painter, you don't always, always have the income. And since he had a background in graphic arts, I think that was just a way to make some use, some money, you know. When these great musicians would come over and play, I mean, was this mundane business as usual? Did you get used to it? Or, or were you aware that this was something special and you were you know, witnessing these great artists? Or were they just oh, friends knew, of mom I and knew. dad? No, I knew it. I knew it because my, knew. my parents would take me to all the concerts. You know, I, There's a very beautiful place in Antibes, Jean Le Pen, called La Pinède. Uh, where a lot of um, where every year a jazz festival would find place I guess in the summer and this is before Nice became the big jazz festival that it is today and I have early recollections of my mom taking me to see Miles there and like Ray Charles and and other artists you know uh, so there was there was music Especially in the summer, there would be festivals and there would be musicians come coming through southern France. Also, there was a, a Navy presence, uh, American Navy. So, you know, when, when you're an African-American and there are not too many in southern France at that point, people who would be on shore lives, leave somehow found out that my father was living there. So there were always, you know, African-American people coming to the house, and uh, my parents 
both had their ateliers there. My father was painting there, and my mother was making jewelry, and and uh, so they rented this big house, which had a lot of space. So some mu- some musicians would come and stay like months at a time, you know. You must have a lot of good memories of that time. Yes, like, yes. I mean, I was young. I was uh, up until I was about ten. So, but I still have very very vivid recollections of barbecue parties and. You know, Ray Charles's whole band coming to the house. Wow. Les McCann or Count Basie's band or so, you know. It's, it, was, um, it was before um, the civil rights movement. It was late 50s, early 60s. And so a lot of places would be segregated. And, you know, like when musicians would travel down south, they wouldn't have accommodations. They would stay with... There was a whole network of people who know each other. You know, and that kind of was kind of a little of, a, of an extension, you know, when you travel to Paris. And my parents were in Paris until 1958 at the time where there were people like Chester Himes and Richard Wright and James Baldwin and a lot of African-American expatriates. Essentially, you were raised on music, jazz music. Yes, and a lot of art also, you know. Uh, Eventually, you were old enough to go to college, and you studied music in Cologne, Germany. Did you get a degree from that school? Actually, I found pretty late. I was already in my early 20s when I auditioned there, and I was lucky to be accepted. Uh, It was a conservatory. I did, this was, uh, I think I auditioned in the fall of 1977, and I think I stayed maybe two or three years at the school. Uh, first in the conservatory, and then there was a jazz department. I switched over. And then in 1982, before I graduated from there, I, I went to uh, Berkeley, to Boston, you know, where I graduated in 1985. Legendary, tough auditions. Uh, I mean, one, one of the most prestigious music schools in the United States is Berkeley. Do you remember what the audition process was like? Oh, Contrary to popular belief, it's very easy to get into all it was back then. Really? You know? I don't think it is anymore. <laughs> Maybe. It's yeah. got such a reputation now. Yes, but at that time, things were different. You know, I did have an audition. Um, I think as a bass player, they asked me to, you know, there is always a rhythm section present, and and they asked you to sight-read some stuff or to play, walk a bass line through some changes, play different fields from like a ballad to a fast tempo, medium tempo, uh, walking bass lines, maybe um, something of a, like a bossa or something like that. And um, But I was lucky because there were not too many upright players at that time. You know, I had some playing experience already, and by the time I think I was in the second year, I was also work studying, you know, so I was auditioning other people, and mm-hmm. then I had a full scholarship after a year. So by good. the time you graduated, you had a, a degree in what? It's called a diploma in, in professional music. It's mm-hmm. basically like a Bachelor of Music, but uh, at the time I went to Berkeley, uh, most people really wanted to play, you know, and uh, very few stayed and took the academic courses also. So I never took, like, English and all the academic in- courses. I just took music-related courses. You, you know? let the music do the talking for you. Yes, 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 because uh, 
you know, I wanted to play. I wanted to, the school was just like preparing me and it was also very expensive. Uh, I had to make a living. So um, after two years, I moved down to Boston, to, uh, to, to New York, you know, trying my luck there. Well, it seems like you got quite lucky, uh, and so did the people you played with, because you were a seasoned professional, I'm sure, by then, or pretty close to it, being in these music schools. or I mean, you had a lot of education. I'd like to give our listeners a little taste of what you sound like, what all this uh, music education and training has led to. Can we hear something? Okay, the first uh, song we're going to listen to is uh, Bird-like. It's a... A 12 by Blues, composition by Freddie Hubbard. It's uh, the Tony Williams Quintet. I was part of the Tony Williams Quintet for um, a number of years. You'll hear Tony Williams on drums, Mulgrew Miller on piano, Wallace Roney on trumpet, and Billy Pierce on saxophone and myself on bass. Check this out.
Wow, that's fast. That Tony Williams, uh, what a great drummer, legendary drummer. He had a reputation uh, for being a real stickler when it came to practicing and stuff like that. I heard a story about him getting in Miles Davis's face about it, which is hard to imagine. Did you find that working with him, he had such high standards that he was a stickler for those things? Was he difficult to work for? No, not at all. I mean, the um, Tony Williams came... Spent his formative years, his uh, professionally, his first professionally, as playing with Miles Davis. He has, uh, and, and that brings a certain work ethic. Uh, all the other musicians that I know who have played with Miles and that I was fortunate to play with, somehow you, you can see that they went through that that school of playing. You know, I, I was fortunate to play with with Herbie Hancock and uh, with Wayne Shorter and to study with Ron Carter. So there is not so much spoken about music. Either you hear it or you don't hear it. But every now and then I would come, I would go to um, to Tony Williams and ask him questions. You know, um, at that time I was, uh, the band had been together already a number of years and uh, Seanette Moffat and Bob Hurst had played with the band, so I was new, and it's 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 tough when you um, when you come up and you like a new addition. You have to find your place, find your, and uh, as you as you heard in the music, the music is is very loaded, you know. So where do I where do I fit in? How do I stand my ground? How do I support the band? And how do I, and not get in the way at the same time? A lot of these musicians that, not just on this recording, but the ones that you mentioned, Ron Carter and such, I mean, these these guys are from like the early 60s quintet stuff that Miles Davis did, uh, Wayne Shorter, and I mean, so many great musicians. Did you have to prove yourself? Did you, did you feel you, you had to prove yourself to these guys you know, as a musician, well, be able to keep up with them? I mean, these these are, you know, tremendous musicians. Did you feel you were welcomed in with open arms, or were they standoffish at all? No, they were they were very receptive, very encouraging. Let's not forget these 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 are my heroes. That's the music I've been listening. I had been listening for a decade at least, and just drooling over what these musicians were doing. You know the the level of first of all of the control and level of knowledge on their instrument, the um, the le- level of artistry. The way of playing together, of um, intuition, um, uh, just knowing when to play the right thing, you know, and that those are not things that you speak about. It's either you keep your open, your eyes open, and your your ears are open, and you 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 just go for it, you know. Every night that I play with Tony Williams, I can attest to the fact that I felt that. That man played like it was the last time he would ever play, you know. He always sounds that way to my ear whenever I hear Tony He never went for things. He's always stretching, always um, trying to renew himself. And and I felt exactly the same playing with Herbie Hancock and with Wayne Shorter, you know. It's not about playing down what you've learned in your four rooms and 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 just it's it's about being in the moment being in the now and they're all jazz innovators every one of those guys oh, yeah very innovative and that's, players. that's basically i think that's the spirit of like the the um, 
the kind of um, philosophy that uh, you get out of playing with Miles Davis in the 60s, you know, and those bands, you know, it's not a tangible, it's not a, it's not, a, you know, it doesn't sound like rehearsed, it, it sounds truly different every time, you know. You have got a, quite a list of people that you played with, from Cab Calloway to uh, Milt Jackson. I love Bags, by the way. Mm-hmm. He's just a, another great, innovative musician. I love his work with John Coltrane that mm-hmm. he did, and and, um, and Monk. Yeah. And Monk. Uh, I mean, Herbie Hancock, uh, Dee Dee Bridgewater. There, there's, you know, the late Milt Jackson. I'm, I am curious about uh, your your playing with him. W- what was that like? Oh, that, that was wonderful. You know, first of all, he was an old friend of my dad. You know him, him, and every time Bag would come to, to Paris, and my father was around, and Kenny Clark was around, they would just like hang out together. So it's my father's generation. It's it's the music that I was listening. Definitely, it, it, there was a connection, an emotional connection, you know, with what my father really liked. You know that Milt Jackson was the kind of a player who would play two choruses, and every time he would play a solo, it was perfect. It was a gem to the point where I almost felt like stopping to play because I really wanted to hear what he was doing. You know. <laughs> And I did most of the the concerts that I did with him were like just a bass, no amplification, just a mic in front of the bass, hmm. and just know, pure, pure, you know, pure. Now you worked with Dee Dee Bridgewater quite a bit too, another great jazz musician. Mm-hmm. You had like, I guess, for lack of a better word, I'll call it a stint that lasted probably seven years, where yeah. you probably played with her quite a bit. I don't know, two thousand two to two thousand nine, something mm-hmm. like that. But I notice you still do play with her. In fact, you just finished a tour in Europe with her. So how often do you guys get together and, and play? Actually, after uh, this was the first time, it was sort of a reunion of a French project that we had done together uh, featuring French chansons, you know. Didi lived a long time in uh, in France, you know, in the 80s and 90s, up to the uh, year 2000, I guess, maybe a little longer. That was her way to play tribute to, to France, you know? so we played songs like uh, J'ai Deux Amours, which had been made famous by Josephine Baker, and uh, some Charles Trenet songs and Yves Montand and Edith Piaf, Edith Piaf and um, um, Leo Ferré and yes, you know, basically French mm-hmm. chanson standards, you know, known French songs. No, I always heard that Europeans were more receptive to jazz music than Americans. The the audiences over there. Do, do you find that to be true? Um, I think that's a cliché. It I is a cliché, huh? It's a cliché. Ah, right I always wondered about that. But there's a, I mean, it's you know sometimes things are more appreciated and more in fashion than other other times. You yeah. know, uh, you know, jazz kind of received like a kind of a renaissance in the '80s. You know, with when a lot of young musicians came up, like you know Harry Connick and Wynton Marsalis and you know, Roy Hargrove and Josh Redman and so on. You know, mm-hmm. it started Brad Meldow. You know, it's... it's So there was a new generation coming up, you know. Um, and in the late 70s, the, the ones who had been forgotten or who had a comeback like um, Dexter Gordon and uh, other musicians who had been in Europe and came back. So it kind, kind of 
comes and goes. You know, now my father's generation has passed away. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm 63 now, so the last few great giants alive are Sonny Rollins, Roy Haynes. And they're and, 90 years know, old now. Jimmy Heath, yeah, they're in their 90s and so on, you know. They're, they're almost as old as U.B. Blake was when I when I came on the scene in wow. 1980. Puts you things know? in perspective. So, Father Hines or the older musicians, the, 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 the generation which, which was there before the beboppers, you know. I mean, one of the reasons I made that comment about um, Europeans being more receptive is simply that some of these incredible uh, artists in jazz, uh, some of the biggest names in jazz, you step outside the realm of jazz for a second, at least in this country, as far as I can tell, and they're not household names. You know, people who listen to pop music, they've never heard of people like Bud Powell. They've never heard of Art Tatum. They don't know Curly Russell. These aren't huge names to your average person, but they are huge game-changing musicians that have had an yeah. enormous um, effect on jazz. Well, those are those are not household names in Europe either, you know. So, I think uh, the thing about jazz in Europe is that since like the 1910s or the 20s, like with their arrivals of people like Sidney Bechet and then uh, Josephine Baker and and then through the 30s, after the war especially, that a lot of African-American musicians settled in Europe. Um, so you can say that there's a long tradition of jazz musicians, of European jazz musicians, you know, musicians in Europe who were like so, you know, so mesmerized by the music that they wanted to do it themselves, you know, and then play. And, and, and also there was a lot of exchange between European and and American musicians coming through, or expatriates, so that, like, in countries like France, um, uh, Holland, uh, Sweden, Denmark, even in small country as Denmark, there is a long tradition of jazz musicians, and still to this to this day, still young musicians, um, you know, walk in their foot in their footsteps. You know, I mean, you've played a lot of jazz, but eventually you started to play with some pop musicians. Uh, there was this one guy, uh, springs to mind, let me think, I think they call him Sting. <laughs> He's a quite a big artist, Sting. How did you fall into that? And before you answer that, I'm very curious about, do you have to put on a pop music hat to play with Sting? I know Sting is a big jazz fan. He incorporates jazz into his solo material with Kenny Kirkland and Hiram Bullock and, and all these guys that he's worked with. I know he likes jazz, but it's still pop music, essentially. Do you have to change your approach when you play the bass to kind of fit into the pop world, or do you just do your, your jazz thing? Um, that's an interesting question. I like the discipline of having, of trying to play, you know, the same thing every night, you know, and find the perfection and more in the execution of something that, that you play regularly, you know, it's, it's a little more of a classical, maybe, interpretation of music and pop mm -hmm. music, you know, and I, I believe as a musician, as an accompanist, I'm challenged um, playing with Herbie Hancock one night and Tony Williams the other and, you know, like Jesse Norman another night and mm -hmm. And, and sting on another night. Yes, I mean, uh, you you play much more the part, you know. Like uh, his compositions, his bass lines, and I have, you know, I, I'm a believer of first imitating what is already there before you come up 
with your own stuff. So there are tunes that I've played of his where I play his bass line verbatim, you know. And um, I do play it in an upright or even an electric bass. And I know because it's almost like a composed line that he that he wrote as a, that he wrote as a counterpart to what he's singing, you know. He's himself a bass player, so yeah. when as a bass player you sing, what you play with the bass is really in relationship to what you what you're singing. So that is for me the ori- origin of uh, like studying what's. Sting is doing. I, first of all, I take down his bass line, and then if there's some liberties, maybe some fills where he's just not singing, then I will do that. But um, it's a different discipline, you know, and I, I, I like the challenge, and I like that. Well, it's to your credit that you like to be challenged, and you and you can actually play in, in more than one genre. There are some purest jazz musicians that will only play jazz. You know, Branford Marsalis, when he first started working with Sting, I had read this article where I guess Wynton Marsalis was a little critical of him because he wasn't playing jazz. He was he was with this pop artist. Of course, it's ironic because Wynton went on to play with Clapton and a lot of pop guys. There may be more money or larger venues or more profile to, to playing with pop artists. Uh, I'm not really sure. But Sting always struck me as kind of a perfectionist. Is, is he a perfectionist, would you say? Well, no, first of all, I'm, I'm not going to comment to what Wynton Marsalis said or did. I mean, that's that's... I can only speak for myself, you mm-hmm. know, and I... Um, I can only say that, you know, like, um, Sting is one of the most articulate and generous and hard-working musicians that I've ever played with. I gather from the people that I've uh, seen working with him, he likes to surround himself with people who bring something to his music. And I think as a jazz musician, maybe the skill that you bring is to be, is, um, is try to be flexible, and to be um, in an ideal, <laughs> in an ideal setting, not to be too close-minded, but to be open-minded, because jazz by itself is just a mixing, uh, melting pot of all, all kind of different influences, yeah. you know. And yes, you can get stuck into like bebop from the 1950 or, or you know, more avant-garde music of the 60s, and with pol- political uh, uh, views about what music should be like and not. But for me, I must say, I enjoy immensely playing with Sting because, uh, as I said, he's very generous and and a kind person and a thinking musician. You know, he's always gotten his nose in the book. He's, um, he's very soft-spoken. He's very respectful and uh, a great guy. I saw Hank Jones one time play in New York. And I was struck by how there was nobody there. Uh, where, you know, there were a few people there, but it wasn't packed. And afterwards, he did his set, and he, you know, just went over to the bar, and people weren't really... It's not that they weren't aware of him. He, some people were, some people weren't. But when you have a big, huge star, somebody like Sting, you just assume that it might be hard for them to connect with a lot of other people because, to some degree, they've got to live in a bubble just being so such a big superstar. I mean, is there room for personal relationships when you're someone like Sting and are you just a hired gun? No, you treat it really with respect as a, as a musician. That's good to yeah. know. Absolutely. And you played with other pop artists as well. Uh, Mark Cohen springs to mind because you you just did a tour with him this summer yeah that's another great guy 
Yeah. You ever pinch yourself, or do you ever get starstruck and All say, "Look time. where I am"? All the time. All the <laughs> it's, time. It's got to happen. I have quite a few anecdotes, but you know, I, have to, I must say, uh, I never dreamt that I would one day play with Herbie Hancock or Tony Williams or Wayne Shorter or Freddie Hubbard or any of these. Cab Calloway. Yeah, and I, I never dreamt growing up in France and Germany and. Starting to play music at age 18 and being serious about music at age 22. And I was just lucky to um, to choose the bass, which is in a, a, it's not the, the instrument that you typically choose if you want to shine, if you want to be up front. I'm very comfortable with my role of being a team player, being somebody who accompanies and somebody who is not in the limelight all the time. I don't envy these guys out there who have to sing and thousands of people look at them, you know, and waiting for them to, you know, have expectations from them, you know. That's quite a heavy burden to carry and to be a band leader, to make sure that your band members are on time and that all the logistics which go with it, that the money is right and that, you know, to please the record companies and the sales and all of that. I'm glad that I don't have anything to do with that. I, I realize you can't throw a blanket statement over this, but I always felt that bass players were, as people, were subtle like their instruments, you know, that they're not in the forefront. I know a lot of uh, bass players, they all seem to have kind of a similar quality that they're, they're more comfortable kind of standing back and not being the front man. I mean, some bass players are the front man, like Sting. Do you find that bass players in general have some similar traits, just like I think drummers have some similar traits? Do you find that to be true, or is, is no, this just random? I think, I think we have the whole gam, the whole panoply of characters of uh-huh. bass players. Because when I was playing with Tony Williams, it was kind of a coveted place, you know, and he was very loyal. I subbed for Bob Hurst in the summer of, I believe, 1989, because Bob Hurst was going on tour with. Um, with Branford Marsalis and the Jeff Watts. After a while, it was it was clear that he wasn't going to come back. So um, Tony approached me and said, you know, the bass chair is yours if you would like. And that's exactly what I did. I didn't miss one concert with him until he wow. passed away. He was very loyal. All throughout the stint that I was with him, there were some very aggressive bass players who would come and say, yeah, why does I have that gig? I can do that better, you know? Yeah. And would... You know, even like go up to him, you know, why don't you hire me? And in one of these uh, instances, I was there right in front of me. And Tony just looked at them like from the corner of his eye and said, the bass chair is already taken. Even if it wasn't, you wouldn't get (laughs) anywhere near it. Yeah, you wouldn't get it. (laughs) And I, I thought, I said, well, you know, there is a lot of stuff being talked about Tony Williams, like negative stuff, but... I can't vouch for any of that, you know. You know, I, I've been with him for seven years, and I saw him play every gig. You know, he might be going through some difficulties, but he never took out any of his frustration on us, the band. Never. It can be dangerous meeting your heroes sometimes because they don't always, let alone playing for them and with them, they don't always live up to the expectations that you're going to expect them to um, because you idolize them when when they're a hero of yours. But that wasn't really your experience. You've had all very positive experiences with these people, or a lot of them, it sounds like. Most of them, yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's always one or two, Ira, you know. No, but you know, I think... 
Um, I think it's like that in life. You know, when you choose the situations that you're working in and so on, you know, you, you end up surrounding yourself with people who are like-minded. And eventually it's vice versa. Yeah. You know, if you play with certain musicians who like your integrity, they will call you. Yeah. And great not, musicians, they just want to play as well. They're, yeah, they're, I mean, they're playing passionate the bass and, and, you know, doing your homework and playing in tune and, and, and knowing the music and so on. That A lot of people can do that, you know. But do you want to be with somebody personally on the road for like a year with whom you don't gel? That's a lot of time. Even if the music is, is right or not. No, I would rather choose somebody who has the same qualification with whom I can. I feel like I I can share also more than music. Then because music is just not notes, you know. It's also personality, is respect, is you know. There's the way you dress if you show up punctually. By the way, I'm very sorry for being late for this. That's all right. <laughs> I'm just happy you're here. You know, but that's part of of uh, being professional. You know, and that's. I think I understood that been always felt like nervous about being prepared, you know, about, you know, nailing the music, you know, you know, not being like the fifth wheel on the cart in a band, you know, being up to top with the level of musicianship that other or talent that other musicians have with whom I'm playing and so on. You know? And that's what makes you a great musician is because you are concerned with those things and people like Sting don't work with just anybody. So, And not just Sting, but just about anyone that you've worked with. And that's a credit to your musicianship philosophically and just physically your knowledge and your know-how your abilities you know what would be fun right now iris is if we could hear a little something in the work that you've done with sting can we hear a little something that you guys have played yes. together he asked me to join him a few years ago to um do a concert series of his greatest hits arranged for symphony orchestra it was called symphonicity and uh this is one of his uh, of his songs that I like very much. It's a, it's about love and the fields of barley. It's called uh, Fields of Gold. Great song. Let's listen. Thank you. 
Again on guitar, Mr. Dominic Miller. That was great. That was a beautiful arrangement to the song. Was that recorded in Germany, in Berlin, I think you said? Yes, that's a live recording. Um, live recording in Berlin, I believe 2011, but don't quote me on that. There must be a big difference between touring with someone like Sting and some of the jazz people that you've toured with because of the venues. I would imagine you play in some pretty big arenas. How big of a difference is it? Oh, it's a huge difference. I mean, it's you go like from ten to thirty thousand, and we played in um, in St. Petersburg with Sting in, in front of the Hermitage. I think they, it was an open air. And then I was told there was 250,000 people there. So a quarter of a million people? Yeah. It's like, like playing at Woodstock. It's like streets were full as far as I could see. I mean, wow. it was, and then you have this huge sound coming out of a tiny little double bass. I mean, it, I, I understand. I understand rock musicians being like passionate of playing big arenas and having huge sound come out. You know, it's, it's amazing. You know, <laughs> it's it a is. different experience. That is amazing. It, but I love the intimacy also of a small jazz club, you know, where I'm playing without a microphone. Or I, I just like the challenge of the diversity, you know, different kind of music, different styles, different venues, different artists, uh, different audiences. Are you a composer, Ira? No, I don't. You don't compose your own no, music? No. I do teach. I teach. I like teaching. I like sharing what I've learned. I like teaching because it forces me to analyze it and formulate what I knew and to share it with somebody else. I've been very fortunate throughout all my career to meet musicians who are willing to share. You know, I remember going up to Ray Brown, the legendary bass player, and asking him, you know, well, if I could have a lesson in his hotel room, and he gladly did that. You got a lesson program. in bass from Ray Brown. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, that it's still done 
that way. You know, you would go to somebody that you admire and say, can I have a lesson with you? Can I have some of your time? Would you mind sharing me some of your knowledge? And all the great musicians that I've known, a lot of them have done that. I've approached Ron Carter like that. I've approached um, John Clayton, who's a great uh, bass player. Miroslav Vitus, Dave Holland. Some of the best. Yeah, all I've taken lessons with them. You know. It's great that a lot of these musicians probably feel they're paying it forward to some degree, which I really like that because that's part of music. It's a chain to me. You know, I teach as well, and I like the excitement you see when young people start to get it, uh, or not even necessarily young people, just but beginners and people that are trying to learn, and that that spark of hearing something that they recognize in their own playing, and that's very special. And that's one of the nice things about music and musicians is, you know, the the good ones seem to want to pay it forward a little bit. And I think it's important to do that. And I like to do that myself. And I like it when someone does it for me, you know. So it is kind of a chain. Jazz is an improvisational music. Is that composition to some degree, do you think, though? I mean, you may not have compositions formally that you wrote where you have sheet music and all that, but the improv aspect of jazz wouldn't you say that's somewhat of a form of composition oh maybe you know i mean uh, having a a conversation with you i don't call myself a poet and i'm improvising i'm putting words together i'm i'm trying to make sense of try to convey a thought or an emotion that i have to you um or to somebody that i'm speaking to but i don't consider myself a poet by or writer well said that um, and I think it's the same thing with improvisation. You know, I, I, the analogy that I that I um, draw a lot, uh, trying to explain music, is language. You know, the larger vocabulary that you have, uh, the better or the more precise you're going to be able to express yourself. Uh, it's the same thing in jazz. There are certain or in, in improvisational music, you know, what are the parameters, you know, what do you do when you hear a certain chords, you know, which scales can you play over that, what is the material, which, which uh, little patterns that you, that you can call at will can you put in that situation, how can you turn them around and improvise with that and be creative. So it's, it's being creative with a limited or more or less limited amount of tools that you have and then the greater improviser you have then you have a whole suitcase of different tools that you can utilize to um, play within these parameters given parameters it's a playing with more than a, a, you know one or two or three of multiple musicians you know it's like as if you give like an improv team to five actors and you give them a theme and then they just ping pong off each other you know and uh, uh, it's very similar with with music, uh, with the jazz or with the improvisational music. You know of of the uh, the kind of music that I play. You know, you live locally. You live here in Rhinebeck. That makes you a Hudson Valley musician. Although you're certainly a citizen of the world or a musician of the world. How often do you play around here? I try to play as much as possible. Uh, little venues uh, like in Newburgh, in 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 Beacon, and in Woodstock. Uh, well, with various combos? With various combos. You know, I have uh, a certain amount of, uh, a certain number of musicians who, who call me to play with them, and I try to work as much as possible locally. I really like that. I hate living in an area where you're not, 
where you, the, you just reside and you're not really part of the community. And yeah. that's kind of my contribution since I'm on, on the road a lot. You know, sometimes certain years more and other years less, you know. And teaching a couple of days a week also helps me being a little more grounded here also in the area, you know. You've played with Tony DiPaolo, right? Yes. Yeah, I remember seeing you uh, play with Tony a number of years ago. I forget where it was now. It was quite a while ago. For those listeners who don't know, Tony DiPaolo is a, a great jazz guitar player in this area. I've seen him a bunch of times. Do you ever see Tony? You ever still play? Oh, yes, regularly, all the time. Really? You know, yes. He's one of those open-minded musicians also, you know, who will play from Hendrix to... To, to West Montgomery, you know, so it's multiple styles, and I love playing with him. Ira, this has been so wonderful talking to you about your career and just uh, chewing the fat about jazz and all sorts of things. As we're winding up here, I'm thinking of something kind of cool I'd like to do, just just for fun. There was a time I, I listened to nothing but jazz for like 10 years. I didn't listen to any pop music at all. I was obsessed with it. And I love jazz bass players, and there's so many that I love. I'm just going to throw out a name or two, and if you don't mind, just, just a, a little brief comment on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Oscar Pettiford before, played with the great Duke Ellington Orchestra. You're a big fan of his, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. What about Jaco Pastores? Okay, fantastic. I mean, talk about an innovator. I mean, wow. I've yeah, never heard anyone him. play like Jonko. Met him in 1976, I think. 76. Yeah, he was. Uh, I was at the Berlin Jazz Festival just listening to music, and I think Weather Reporter had just played. He was not part of Weather Report yet. It was uh, the band. Then was Joe Zavino, Chester Thompson, Alex Acuna. Pre-heavy Wayne. weather. And Alfonso Johnson, yeah. And he came right after that and did a trio record, a performance with Alphonse Mouzon and a uh, German tr- uh, trombone player, Albert Mangelsdorf. And I got to speak to him. He was very kind. Wow. And uh, I met him also He, when I was studying at Berkeley. He came one time in the club that I was playing, and I asked him to sit in. And he came and played my upright bass. Wow. He was a very nice guy. Fantastic. Always. Yeah. Great, and what a musician, composer, arranger, and what a bass player. What do you think of Victor Wooten? Victor? Oh, fantastic. He plays an eight-string bass, right? Uh, Is is that necessary? What what does that do? I mean, most basses are... I've seen him with his, what is it, the yin and yang bass. Mm -hmm. He plays a four-string bass. Right, I've seen him. Um, I've met him a couple of times at Berkeley up in... Boston, he's, he's good friends with the chair of the bass department there, Steve Bailey. So I met him a few times. Yeah. Steve, seems like a nice guy. I met him uh, once or twice after a Bela Fleck yeah. uh, show. I very very nice down guy. to earth. Yeah. yeah. You know who my favorite jazz bass player is? Walter Page. Walter Page, yeah. I mean, that Kansas City swing, mm-hmm. no one could do it better than Walter Page, in my opinion. Walter I mean, Page Joe Jones, that's a great... Him too. I mean, when you're playing with Count Basie and guys like Lester Young and Buck Clayton, you got to swing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he certainly did. Both of them did. Mm-hmm. How about Steve Swallow? Oh, uh, Mr. Melodic. <laughs> Incredible. I mean, I, I don't think it really matters if we would be playing tuba, upright bass, or keyboard bass, or electric bass. It's, it's just always singing through his bass. No doubt. Never too many notes, just like ex- exquisite. They're, they're just the right notes, you know. 
How about Charlie Mingus? I mean, he, he's very revered as a bass player, probably uh, had a, a huge reach as a jazz musician in terms of his influence. What are your thoughts about him? Just a f- force to be reckoned with. Yeah, uh, a great unique, artist. Absolutely unique. I mean, I have recollection of him staying at our house like for two weeks, yeah, and then meeting him later, like in the 70s later. Underrated bass player, you know, and yeah. composer. Well, for my money, I like Ira Coleman on bass as well. Thank you so much again for being here. It's a true pleasure to to talk to you. Come back and see us anytime. I'd love to take out the show with another piece. You know, you're on a very interesting album that I happen to like a lot, Herbie Hancock and Joni Mitchell. Can we play something off of that? Yeah, actually, it's from the... um the record that I'm on is called Gershwin's World. It's featuring the music of George Gershwin. It's a Herbie Hancock record and Gershwin's contemporaries, so Gershwin's World. So uh, this is a recording of Summertime with, uh, with Herbie and Joni Mitchell and, and um, I believe Stevie Wonder is also on it. Wow, good company. Listen to this, everybody.
Okay, Ira, thank you. <laughs> it's been a real treat listening to this music and talking to about the, the various people that you play with, talking about your career, and you're a real nice guy, too. And really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, produced and engineered every week by Rusty Johnson. And hey, special thanks to Paul Antonell and Clubhouse Studios for hosting us today. And if you like what you've heard, please hit subscribe. This way we get to send you notifications as to when the podcast is up. We do it every week. Come back and listen in next week. You never know who's going to be sitting in this chair next to me. And we'll see you then. (music) 